Prepare to enter the Elf Tree. That's all I could do before I, uh, you know. Because you didn't want to waste your entire your entire breath of weed. No, I can't do it just a quick in and out. That's a waste. Well, I mean. But you got to let it marinate. It's called being a one-pump chump. Is that the name of it? Yeah. A one-pump? Well, no, 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 no. Oh. One-pump chump is, is somebody who's like, you know, with a woman, and it's like, and he goes, and that's it. That's a one-pump chump. It's like your first time you ever like. Sure. Have your wiener touched. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's hilarious. Sorry, dare, I didn't mean to. Uh, hi, Dare, everyone. Hi, Dare. We we opened the show talking about uh, the penises and ejaculations. We are disgusting. We, <laughs> we understand. We are embarrassed. And... <laughs> and 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 to draw attention to our actual persons, I am Ian. And I am Joe. And welcome back to Hi, Dare. And we want to apologize to the city of Gotham for what we just said. The city of, <laughs> of Gotham City. Gotham City. Um, <laughs> no, hello, sunny Los Angeles. Sunny LA, where it is hot <laughs> as balls. It is hot as balls today, but sunny and clear. Which, actually, talking to Martin a couple days ago, it kind of made sense to me that it could actually be hot as balls at this moment, because human body temperature is 98.6 on average, right? Mm-hmm. So, the, uh, the, the scrotum. Unless you're sickly. As it were. Well, my, my mom, actually, her, her resting body temperature her normal body temperature is like a degree or so lower than 98.6 typically she a vamp she might be i I mean i have not been around her entire life so i don't know yet (laughs) ian where have you been (laughs) Um, but um just kidding i'm sorry what was i talking about uh, talking about body temperature. Body temperature. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and balls. Yeah, so <laughs> the scrotum the scrotum is designed to keep men's testicles cooler mm-hmm. than 98.6. So if you think about it, if it's like 90 degrees outside, you know, the, it might actually be hot as balls because yeah. it's a couple degrees cooler, you know. That's interesting. Not not really podcast worthy, but, you know. So to all you at home, But now it is. How hot are your balls? <laughs> five, 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 Big Bear. Big Bear. You know the number. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's Father's Day, man. Did you call your dad? No, no, no. I haven't called my dad yet. I need to. I so, feel bad. I'm sorry. It's not Father's Day when the show's coming out, but it is Father's Day currently. Yeah, it is currently. Actually, and it's also currently our 40th show. I don't know oh, if that's even a big deal. Should, happy should I have birthday <laughs> to us. It's, yeah, 40 shows. is It's a, it's a big number. Dude, let's it's high a, five. It's we, a big we're moving forward in the world of, of age and birthdays and no, stuff. No, it's just weird whenever we save files, like whenever we're creating these sessions to do the shows. Yeah. You know, we have to look at the numbers, and we're like, "Whoa, we're hitting 40. We're hitting forty. You know? I mean, it's 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 somewhat impressive to think that over our three shows and all the unreleased episodes, we've got a good seventy hours of content at this moment. Yeah. It's just I haven't done seventy hours of my own stuff ever. And look, you know? Nerdist and Smodcast. Look, we know you guys have hundreds in the bank. Two hundred episodes, three hundred episodes, eight hundred episodes. <laughs> I yeah, forty big deal. Okay, we'll get there. We will. We will absolutely get there. We're going to truck along. Check us out on episode 52. Yes. So, So, yeah, happy Father's Day to all the dads out there, Uh, my brother and brother-in-laws. My dad wrote wrote a, um, he wrote a letter to us, to the four kids, and it was, it was a a very heartfelt thing. My dad's a very, um, you know, warm, 
heartfelt, you know, wears his heart on his sleeve, emotional, not emotional. He's not like, you know, emotional, but, uh, <laughs> but you know, he's got emotion. He's, Why did you say it like that, Ian? Yeah, he, well, it's a, uh, he, so he wrote a, he wrote a fairly long email, but he just, he was, it was kind of a, like a little memoir type of thing that he wrote as father, you know, That's he was cool. like, I'd like to reflect on what it is to be a father, which is the first you know, I mean, my I know how my dad is. I know how my dad feels, and I know how much he loves us, and how much I appreciate the things he's given. But you know, he 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 created a a little mini uh, documentation, you know, of of what it is. You know, so, so. he's in his own uh, experience. He's like trying to document his experience right, right. right now as he's reflecting on. My dad could everything. probably write uh, an entire memoir just based on on our lives. I don't know. Dude, and which, it's mind-blowing to think about. You know, I think all, everybody's parents could. I mean, I always think about that. I'm like, I don't have Or kids. write an album or something, well, you know? You know, people that have kids and they grow up so fast. And I can't imagine being a parent and having to, you know... I've sat across the table from my mom having drinks and yeah. we're, you know, in Cancun or whatever. And I remember, and I only say this because I remember this trip specifically when I thought about this, I was like, man, my mom like raised all of us, yeah. all of us kids. How many of their, while she was going there? through her own experiences, you know, her yeah. own perceptions of life. Right. And we got to see life through her eyes to a degree, but yeah. at the same time we were in our own little fairy tales together as siblings and, but it's crazy. I'm, I was sitting there like, man, she's now sitting across the table from her adult son having a drink, and we're just talking about life and what right. we're doing. And <laughs> that was her moment of realizing she was on oh, episode dude. forty. You know, that was that was kind of like, whoa, holy cow, Joe's thirty-two years old. What the fuck, dude? I, I always think about how Sorry, I am. That's yeah. not. That's not. I'm sure you don't have a potty mouth. We always beep beep ourselves because we lose our train of thought. Well, I do. Yeah, I'll take blame to that. He's looking. He's looking at us all, all awkward. Like we're the, I know. the weird ones. It's just we do these little upfront segments of the show, and some sometimes it's such a rare. Sorry, I'm trying to say the sentence. It's such a rare time that we have a guest on. It's true, and we like to have this little buffer before we well, invite. We want to lay out the red carpet. We've had some guests on this show, and these guests have been mostly people that we've known. You know, we we spend time with outside. So know. we keep the red carpet packed away. You know, it's like we're not going to roll out the red carpet. You get the the shitty old, you know, stomped on like off white. It's like carpet, the astroturfy you know. kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, right. The indoor outdoor carpet. <laughs> <laughs> That's what they get. Um, but very rarely we have a guest on that we don't really know. Somebody who whose story is is the the main focus of why we want to have a conversation. Um, and today we've got a very special guest on. Yes, we he's, are pumped up. Uh, he's a author and uh, just just overall imaginative man. Lots of wisdom inside of Lots his. Lots of wisdom. Uh, yeah, exactly. Inside his of his soul, his works, and his soul and his fingertips. Um, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to High Dare, Mister Elijah Shkibon. Yeah, welcome to High Dare. Thank you. Ah, uh, yeah. Elijah is a uh, he's a writer. Um, he wrote a book called Bats and Butterflies, which I just read. And uh, man, we uh, you guys met because you overheard a conversation. Starbucks, yes. Yeah. I'm sitting at Starbucks at a at a communal table, which I enjoy the energy of of a communal table, um, especially for creative kind of work. And you were interacting with another gentleman at the end of the table, and then when he left, you moved over and caught my eye, and you you had the desire to explain, you know, oh, this is usually you know kind of where I sit, and I'm doing, you know, you have your routine, you have a kind of a, a ritual as to to what you do every day at, at that Starbucks, right? 
Well, uh, yes, as a matter of fact, I sit at that particular spot every single day in order for me to write. It's my office, unfortunately. Yeah. I cannot afford an office at this point, but uh, that's what I do. I write every day in the same spot, in the same Starbucks, uh, pretty much at the same time. So. And uh, that's what I love to do. It's the, it's the creative discipline. I really enjoy... Um, getting into a, a flow of, of being able to do that on a more regular basis, sit down with a pattern and, and just let it come out of me. Well, that, again, it's very, very uh, difficult to write to begin with. But if you create a routine where you just do it, that's it. Nothing else matters. Yeah. Nothing counts at that point in your time. You just give it your best. You dedicate three, four hours a day. And then you don't have to worry about it. Yeah. But you need to do it on a daily basis. You Absolutely. need to do it specifically in a, a timely manner. And you need to do it also where you feel more comfortable. Yeah. Where if you, if you move around and you go to different places, you're going to get really distracted. Hmm. So, you know, space and time are very important. And location is more important than space and time. And it's all about your comfort. I feel, you know, where you can concentrate on what you're doing. Yes, because uh, it's a point of, a, a starting point where you can take off. It's like a nest where you sit and then your imagination just goes out there and yeah. soars. But you're safe in that little nest, in that specific place. Yeah. Which is a corner at Starbucks. <laughs> That's true, <laughs> but you, you, I don't entirely remember how the 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 conversation topic came up. But you mentioned that you had previously engaged in some legal battles with uh, Mr. James Cameron and Twentieth Century Fox over Avatar. Uh, and I hope that this battle will continue until I win. That's <laughs> true. I mean, you you uh, you have to be ever hopeful when you're you're. Well, biblically speaking, David going up against such a Goliath character such as James Cameron and 20th Century Fox. I agree with you, but uh, it's Elijah who's, who happens ah. to be a prophet that is even more interesting than David. There it David is. David and Goliath is a myth, but Elijah is a prophet and that he is. existed. And <clears throat> as far as I know, he was a judge and he basically... Um, used to destroy non-believers ah, yes. and used to kill Phoenicians for believing in uh, the power of the fire rather than Jehovah. Right. So. And you also, uh, your, your, your accent would suggest that you're not from here, but you've mentioned that you're from Lebanon. I was born in Lebanon and I grew up in Lebanon. Which is, I mean, that's, that is the, the, uh, I mean, is it, is it, considered part of the Holy Land at this point? I mean, yes. I, or, or in its location, I guess? Uh, from a Judeo-Christian point of view, yes, it is. Because okay. Jesus managed to cross over and uh, was in Lebanon for right. a while. Right. It's just, it's it's a it's a culture that people think of as a thing of the past when, especially in a religious standpoint, you know, here in America, you've got, you know, your Baptist Christian people that probably don't think much past, you know, uh, 
100 years ago when you've got your history books and stuff like that. They yeah. don't imagine that, that there are still people and, and things and, and, and life happening in the, the Holy Lands, the Bible, Bible lands and stuff. I agree with you. And uh, based on that, I can say uh, relating to that is that my family name dates back to the 1100s. Goodness. In Lebanon. Wow. Yes. And uh, that's, that's amazing. Holy cow. Yes. And, and uh, there were rulers of Lebanon. They were kings and princes and uh, they governed the entire country. Goodness gracious. So you that's, have royal blood. I'm, I can say I'm a blue blood prince. Yes. There you go. My great, great, great grandfather negotiated with the Ottoman Empire Oh, uh, to bring back. Uh, so you're like Sardonique. Right? Like Sardonique. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But Sardonique was a princess. So, well, there's that. <laughs> but I'm a blue blood. That's true. Well, based, uh, the, the whole story of bats and butterflies uh, is a derivative of uh, several factors. One of them is uh, my grandfather always reminded us when we were kids that uh, we come from royalty and we have blue blood in us. And. Uh, as you know, you've read the book, as you said, um, mm-hmm. the entire story is about a kingdom with a king and a queen and a war going on. And uh, it's all embedded within my memory. They were but, essentially one, and then they ended up splitting apart into yes. two separate clans. Well, that's, that's the Judeo-Christian uh, belief and the background of what the story is all about. Um, I, I don't know if you care about i mean do you want to talk about that i'm not sure if absolutely no. oh, absolutely yeah. okay yeah, well well i mean in in the judeo christian belief uh at one point god created the world which is it's it's not eden it's not the garden of eden it's heaven and in heaven he had angels and the angels for some reason they split up in two and they became good angels and bad angels, and this is where bats and butterflies comes from. Yeah. Uh, one entity that were once uh, flying spiritual beings in an eternal light, and then darkness came into that world, and it split the two in half, those who followed the light and those who decided to remain in the dark. Mm. And this is where you get bats and butterflies. Mm -hmm. And the story continues and move on to uh, the world where we live. And in this world, uh, there is a character by the name of Joshua. Uh, In James Cameron's Cameron's, uh, script at one point, his uh, character's name was Josh, oh. and uh, <laughs> somebody said, "Hey, I'm pretty sure we're going to attract some attention with that one." So I believe, yes, I believe they decided <laughs> to turn it into Jake instead of Josh. Anyway, bottom line is that um, Joshua basically ends up in that world where the bats and butterflies live, and. Uh, he gets pulled through through what's it called the cluster of crystals? Oh, no, he, but he, yes, the cluster of crystals that exist on planet Altair. This he got pulled through the telescope mm-hmm. of his father, 
Yeah, he sneaks back. He's running from the bullies. He exactly. goes into the house. So he's a human child, and he's he's. But yes. you, and you you kind of related. I don't know. I don't know if you've ever heard a relation of this before, but like a little Harry Potter esque in the in the beginning, kind of where you've got a child that that's kind of got some. He's bullied. Like, he's uh, uh, a disliked. Shit he's orphaned. Uh, his parents were killed in a car wreck. Yes. Um, and and uh, bats and butterflies pre-existed. Exactly. Which actually, lemony snickets. That's how the, the a series of unfortunate events. That's how those two kids became orphans. Was their parents died in a car wreck? Ah, they ended up uh, well, getting that, booted around. That happens. Well, my hmm. my script dates back to 1988. Yeah, so it's crazy. I, don't, I, don't, how, I, don't I know, know. That's I don't know who came. I mean, well, that's what I was telling Ian. I was like, man, like well, as just, it created certain images in my head, I'm thinking. These are movies that came post this book. Yeah, so exactly. It's it's weird to see all these little things tie in and kind of strike certain images. But man, I I don't know. This book that you wrote, I just think needs to be made. It was really I don't know, very visual for me. So, uh, um. yeah. Anyway, he <laughs> ends up sneaking back to his house that he grew up in that's now abandoned. Yeah. And he goes up and he uh, finds Altair still. I guess it's still positioned. Exactly. Where his dad left it. Where his dad left it, and he's pointed uh, to Altair, and next thing you know, he falls asleep, and uh, through science and magic, he disintegrates uh, from planet to Earth, and he ends up on planet Altair. Wow. And when he wakes up, he's in the world of the bats and the butterflies. Mm-hmm. Goodness. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, uh, it's an adventure. Wow. Yeah, so he uh, essentially... He's hiding from the the thugs that are after him. And next thing you know, he finds himself on the planet. And uh, he didn't realize that until later on when he starts seeing what's going on on that planet. Yeah. And at that point on Altair, um, the last butterfly princess was supposed to be initiated in order for her to continue ruling, to become a queen and continue ruling on yeah. that world. And the bats... Because there is an animosity between them and the butterflies, want to destroy her, and by destroying the last butterfly queen, they will rule the entire planet. So he arrives at that point where the princess is getting initiated at the lake. Yes, and yeah, how, he, how he arrives at the uh, the ceremony. Yes, mm-hmm. how yes. old is Joshua at this point? Uh, Joshua is about thirteen years old. Okay, yeah, okay. he's old enough to know what the world is all about, sure. and he has a concept of what life is all about. So he's not a seven-year-old. He's not 22 like Jake. Yeah. Uh, probably the common thing between him and Jake uh, is the fact that they're both crippled in a way. Jake cannot walk, and Joshua has his arm broken, so he is a weak person. Yeah. They're both weak. But it kind of it opens up where he's always running away and hiding, and he gets beat up pretty bad. Exactly, and uh, so he finds himself upon the ceremony and ends up hiding. Like he runs and hides in a trunk, tree trunk. Yes, just like what Jake did when he was running away <laughs> from that right. monster. He gets into uh, the tree and he tries to hide, and then he gets picked up by the monster. Huh. And uh, so did so did Joshua. He gets picked up by a bat, but yeah. he manages to get away from him. So the similarities are a little bit too uh, close. 
Hmm. Just reminds you that uh, copyright infringement is not necessarily about what you come up with, but what you end up reading. Right. Well, it's crazy because you wrote this story and just real quick before we kind of go further, I guess, into the what how it all kind of became an issue because you were you sat down when you started coming up with this i don't know like how did you like what were you going through in your head as you started writing out this story and picturing something that we hadn't seen up until right because this is a very from what joe has explained to me and from the the videos that i've seen of yours where you kind of match the the uh the passages from your book with the scenes from Avatar. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a very vividly imagined world. So there's, there had to have been, you know, things going through your head to just kind of imagine all of this just Like, could you see stuff. the outcome of what the story would be or were you kind of going chapter by chapter and just on a blank slate? Well, I can explain that, but let's date the back, let's date back to where the image imagination came from when I was a kid. Uh, my father used to turn the radio on when it's when there is no electricity and it's cold and it's snowy and we're stuck in the house. And he would make me listen to the radio, a run on batteries to Shahrazad and 1001 Night and all these stories in the dark at the, with the candlelight and the lanterns just... They, my imagination would soar, would just be driven to a different world. This is where the vivid imagination started. And then my mother would tell me stories and she would say, she would tell me a story and she would have me repeat it with a different ending. And every time Hmm. it was a different ending that was suitable, she would say, okay, well, I'm going to write it down and I'm going to save it for you. When you grow up, you're going to remember that. Nice. And it went on and on and on. So... I live in a world, I mean, I live in this world, obviously, but I live also in a world that is completely in, in, my, in my mind. I step away from everything when I sit down and write at Starbucks. Yeah. I am sitting physically, I'm sitting right there at Starbucks, but my imagination is somewhere else. It's in the world that I created. Wow. And this is what this whole thing comes from. I mean, it's... it's it's stuff they make movies about and you're here actually experiencing it in, I mean, I do the same thing. And I imagine that Joe, you do the exact same thing Mm -hmm. when you're, when you're writing music, it's almost like there are elements of you that are, are truly not there. You, you are, you are where your, your art is at Mm -hmm. that moment. And so that's just such a, it's a fascinating thing to experience the, the few times that I, I get to. And it's, it's a shame if people haven't, you know, don't have something like that of their own. I, th- I think you said the key. It's like you create a nest. Yes, it's a nest. exactly. You know, where you're sitting is a nest, but you're allowed to, to, to take off. I mean, I stated it as a nest just to give you an idea that uh, an artist is not necessarily a person. It's a person with wings, and where he sits is a nest to give you the idea that he can fly, that he can go somewhere else, yeah. that he can take off. And taking off is not running. Taking off is flying. When you fly, you experience the whole world from a different perspective. You can look down at things and see mm-hmm. them from a different point of view. Yeah which is not necessarily something that everybody can do. It's like so, observing? Is that what you mean? 
not only observing, but you see you see everything and and you can pick and choose what you want because you're seeing it from above. Yeah. Uh, of course, you can come down and experience it with the rest of the world. But in order for you to see an entire story, for example, and you were trying to mention how did it come together, you need to see the beginning, you need to see the middle and the end, and you connect the dots. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You only can connect them if you're from above. Absolutely. If, yes. you're, if you're from below, if you're walking like everybody else and you're all around them, you may, be get, you may get lost within the streets you're and the buildings. just experiencing... Exactly. But mm. if you're soaring on the top, you already create the entire story the way you want. And then you can come down at that point after creating it and finding the parameters of what you want to write yeah. and experience it and evolve it from the point of view of everybody else. But when it comes down to the story, you have to look at it from above. Nice. How, long, uh, how long did this take you to do to write? Uh, I wrote the script of Bats and Butterflies in 1988 and went on to writing many projects. But I always went back to it. I always went back to it. In 2005, I decided that I'm going to put it together as a book. And I wrote it as a book in 2005. Nice. So, so you, okay, you have mentioned script then uh, a time or two. So you wrote it as a, as a screenplay, I imagine? I wrote it as a screenplay in 1993. It won an award from the International Black Filmmakers Hall of Fame in Oakland, Ohio. Nice. Okay. Okay. Congrats. Wow. I'm not black. <laughs> it's I'm an award winning <laughs> it's an award winning screenplay. There you exactly, go. Exactly. Exactly. Wow. I collected the award and it was very sweet. And uh it was very nice. And uh I still have the placard, so that's amazing. That's awesome. How how close are the two the two separate pieces of work, I suppose, then? Well, that's the thing. Uh, Bats and Butterflies, the script, talks about Joshua going into a world through a vortex. And that vortex is on planet Earth. With the book of Bats and Butterflies, I decided that let's see if I can place him somewhere where no humans are, where he can be... Uh, free to do whatever he wants to do. And at that, at that point, I had to come up with something that uh, is a background to, to what the bats and butterflies are all about. Mm-hmm. And in, in the script, there was no explanation why they existed. So Altair, which is a planet, by the way, and the word means bird in Arabic, are two planets that are at the far end of our galaxy. They do exist. Sending him to that world gave me the idea, gave me the chance to create a background and create a dossier for the bass and the butterflies and how they existed. Yeah. So that's the difference between the script and the book and also bringing out the elements of the trees, which is also based on, a, on another script called Tree Dwellers, and the cocoons right. that glow and the moth that glows and all that stuff that you see. Yeah. I know I'm segueing into Avatar, but everything that you see, that elaborate work that yeah. exists in Avatar, is nothing more than just a reflection of what exists in Bats and Butterflies, the book. And uh, at what point did you start to suspect that 
there are there are more than just a a few coincidental similarities. I did not. I expected that my material was ripped off before I saw the movie. When I saw the poster of that half face of Netiri or Nefertiri or whatever her name is, mm-hmm. Zoe. Was it Zoe, Zoe Saldana? Saldana yeah. Yes. Nefertiri, Netiri. Uh, when I saw half of her face in that poster, mm-hmm. I knew instantly that there is something that has to do, that has something to do, has to do with my material, with my work. And mind you, in 1997, my agent at the time, Jerry Smith, ended up sending my material, Bats and Butterflies and Tree Dwellers, to 20th Century Fox. And this is when uh, John Lando stated that they decided they want to do Avatar. Ah. So with 20th Century Fox. And uh, around 1997, is that what you're saying? 1997. So your work was submitted to them and they had it in their hands? The work was submitted to 20th Century Fox. And at that point, uh, John Lando and uh, James Cameron were finishing up uh, Titanic. This is when he states that they decided that they want to create another movie and it's Avatar. Wow. They knew back in 1997 that they were creating Avatar. According to him, according to Sean Lando. Okay, okay. But also according to paperwork that I have and material that was signed by the vice president of uh, 20th Century Fox film animation, uh, family film. Okay. The material existed in their uh, their hands. In their possession. It was sent to them. Right. So essentially they would just take pieces of, of material they, I guess, because I don't know how it really works over there, but apparently they would just take pieces of material that's submitted and they just took elements or... Just pieced it like together. How do you, yeah, how do you feel like that happened from well, their side of the... They obviously had something in mind. They wanted to create a story about uh, somebody falling in love, a human being falling in love with an alien. And uh, that's what they had in mind. But when you look at what's in Bats and Butterflies, the book, and what's on the screen with Avatar, you see that it's all there. Everything that is in my book exists in Avatar. And that has something to do with artistic interpretation. You take something and you turn it around and you twist it as much as you want and put it out there and it becomes something that you think is a derivative of your work, but it's not, it's not James Cameron's movie. Yeah. Well, maybe it is his movie, but it's not his material. His source material. Right. I mean, you, you've mentioned a time or two that it, it's not, you're not arguing that he, he stole your material so much as he was influenced by your material when he was creating the film as a whole. Well, that's being a little bit diplomatic. I mean, you know, I'm not going to be mean or, or aggressive in saying that he stole the material. Right. So we're not going to be accusing him of okay. stealing the material. <laughs> but you can use any other word that is politically correct or polite and say, yes, he was influenced by my work. Yeah. 
Yeah, because I always wonder, like, I even freak out now with how computers are connected to everything. You know, people are putting their their stuff in store, like anything you write or music that I can create. I mean, essentially, people store all these files on the cloud. So, I don't know. I always just think about, man, with all, like, and I don't want to go down this hole, but, like, with NSA supposedly being able to just capture all this material, essentially, they could sell it off to black markets and people could just steal other people's material and piece it together. And I don't know, that's just kind of what I'm trying to think about from when you turned in this material and submitted it to your agent. It's, it's really shady that all of a sudden this movie, right after this guy is working on, I think, a career movie. Like, I don't even know if I'd want to jump into another film right after that. I, I mean, don't know. That seems to be James Cameron, though. I mean, he, he did... The Terminator, he did The Abyss, he did Titanic. I mean, everything, yeah. he seems to just go balls to the wall with with the films that he makes. Well, I mean, you know, we were talking about how you can uh, put things on the cloud and all that and how things get stolen. Uh, up to this point, I was working always on the Internet and uh, I would write on my computer while I'm still connected to the Internet. But I decided that... Um, I pulled out everything that has to do with my writing from my computer. Yeah. And now when I need to write, I put a little flash drive in the computer. I get off the internet. I do my writing. And then when I finish, I take the flash drive out and I go back to the internet. So uh-huh. I'm not allowing anybody to see my material and I'm not discussing it with anyone. There you go. That's go. the way you can protect yourself. Yeah. And then after that, you <laughs> send start it. doing that. <laughs> Life <laughs> hacks. <laughs> and then after that, you send it to the uh, copyright office and uh, you register it and you hope that you're going to be protected. Yeah, the people that you are registering with, it's kind of like you have to trust that organ- that entity, I guess, that's you're paying because it's not cheap to register work. Well, yes, and I agree with you. And as far as I'm concerned, the Writers Guild uh, is nothing more but just uh, a drape. I mean, it's not Mm -hmm. even a wall. Uh, They don't protect you. They do not uh, assign a lawyer for you. They don't help you. Uh, If your your work is infringed upon, all they give you is a number. And you have to renew it every five years. But as far as I'm concerned, it's people that are taking your money and not doing anything about it. Well, exactly, because who... Nobody's keeping, nobody's keeping track of what's going on. Right. And as far as I'm concerned, it's the Copyright Office and the Writers Guild responsibility to uh, find you the right lawyer and protect you if somebody steals your material. If you register with them... It's the responsibility to make sure that if your material is stolen, that they go after the person that took your material. Right. They don't do anything. You just get a number and yeah, that's it's, it. I mean, I who are they? Who are their loyalties though? That's that's the thing. I mean, if they if they get all of these different submissions from all these different people, I mean, it's so much easier to. Just say, hey, we're going to do this, and then actually, when the when push comes to shove, they get to decide. Because, well, I'll be curious with who runs it. Like, who are the head people who actually oversee that, that department? Guild. Yeah, because essentially, I would be curious. Okay, well, if they're not protecting people's material, 
and it's somehow being able to just slip through someone else's hands, that seems really shady to me. Like, I'd be very concerned, you know, submitting anything to these people personally. I mean, what are you doing more than just putting a date stamp on it that, hey, somebody outside the 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 brain of, or this particular flash drive now knows that this material exists. Like, you've put it, you know, there. But other than that, if they don't provide any sort of defense or, or you know, army to come and, come and aid you when, when your material is infringed upon, then you're just wasting time. You're wasting your money. I totally agree with you. This is why I'm never going to register anything with the Writers Guild ever again. I will register with the Copyright Office because at least with the Copyright Office, that specific number that they give you is recognizable by the hmm. courts. But if you register with the writer's guild, it doesn't mean anything. That number may, may not may not stand <laughs> out. Why are people doing yeah, it? I mean, it's, it's not, it's, it's not it's, registered with a, a state or, or anything crazy. like that. It's completely, I agree. It's completely irrelevant to the courts. If you if you register with the writer's guild, it's completely irrelevant, and you cannot present your material unless it's registered with a copyright office in court. In court. Gosh. So. When, so when you when you came across the avatar poster and you were like uh, you knew immediately that okay something's something's up here yes. and then you go see the movie yes what was like what was going through your head like how do you what's the first thing you can do in that like what did you do well right I sat, after you saw I it? sat with a couple of people and I was watching it and every shot with every shot my heart sunk and it kept sinking and. I don't know how deep that chasm was, but it kept sinking. Every time I saw something that related to my book, I felt like a person that is being heavied by a ton of weight. By the end of the movie, he's like tucked into the, the crevice of the sea. Just like he's just sunk so far. I didn't even exist. <laughs> I I felt yeah. like I felt like I was crushed yeah. at the Mariana Trench at the bottom of it. Uh, Ooh, that's how gosh. I felt. Hey, James Cameron's been there. Yeah. I've been there before. <laughs> Except at I, the bottom of that trench there was like Skittles and popcorn and totally. sticky stuff. Oh gosh. And uh, two days later, out of the stress that I went through, I dislocated my hip and I couldn't oh. walk for a few days. Oh, gosh. And that's the stress that basically attacked the weakest point in my body. So uh, that's what went on when I first saw Avatar. And I couldn't believe how can somebody do this? Why didn't they come to me? Why didn't they ask? Why didn't they... Uh, suggest get me involved anything the know. friends uh, the friends that saw the movie with you did they know did they know the background with your book and did they were, have were that they kind prepared of, you know did no. they go into it with that kind no, of bias they as didn't, well they didn't uh, at one point one guy was saying you need to see this movie I've seen it uh, he read my book at that point and he said uh, everything that you have in your book can be done you need to see Avatar and I went and saw it, and it just, uh, as it turned out, it was my book, you know, that yeah. was in, on the screen. That I, there was nothing I could do about it. Oh, that's such a shame. It's such a shame that people are seeing that and seeing just the grandiose aspect of that movie and attributing it to the wrong person and being the person who who deserves, you know, that's just such a, such a, a, Stab in the heart. Yeah, I just don't know what I would do. I mean, did you realize I have 
to immediately call someone or because I, I guess you called the guild is that did you go I, I tried to talk to the writers guild they refused to talk to me uh, they would not give me any information and I ended up spending about six or seven months having to deal with my hip and my back and I was walking with a cane and I could barely walk and I had to deal with my health right. before I was able to go past that and start looking to put together a lawsuit against uh, 20th Century Fox and James Cameron. And um, that's how it goes. So I had to heal a little bit before I can find a way to, to do that. Were you building your case at all? During during those moments, or at least in your head? In my head, I definitely was looking to find a way to present the material to the courts. And uh, I knew for a fact, I did a few, you know, a couple, couple of research uh, on the internet to see what a copyright infringement is all about and how it's presented to the courts and where it fails and where it can succeed. And... Coming from a post-production background, I had to uh, be inventive and find the best way to attack this matter. And based on the fact, again, that they compare a script to a script and a piece of dialogue to a piece of dialogue and a description to a description, it's all literary. Mm -hmm. But when you're sewing a movie, when you're sewing a a person that stole your material you're not suing the script that they wrote you're suing the movie that they made right so based on that i had to step back and understand how to approach the copy the the, the lawsuit and i realized that the best way to close the gap that exists between two t- literary works I had to subtitle the movie with my material and show that what I have written is happening on the screen. The script did not matter anymore, or the script that he supposedly wrote didn't matter anymore. What mattered was what mattered was the movie and how it relates to my book or my book and how it relates to the movie, and it's not the script. So I subtitled the movie and I put together the whole thing in a matter of seven months or eight months in order for me to find a lawyer. And that's another hurdle that everybody has to go over. Uh, well, if, those, those I've seen those videos. The, the, the one that you did for Avatar is, is fascinating just to take mm-hmm. a look and, and think, okay, I mean, there's definitely, there's definitely the correlation of, of material and uh, uh, an inspired, you know, uh, no, excuse me, an adaptation of that material. You know, the way it, it inspired that visual, you can definitely see. And we'll put those up on our website, you know, uh, yeah, you know for everybody to see. Well, there is something called uh, artistic interpretation, which is the uh, obligation of a director to the movie that he's creating, is that he's going to take material that exists on paper and bring out the visual that exists on that paper and put it out there and turn it into a movie. That's why they're called filmmakers because they make a movie. Mm-hmm. So that's what it's all about. Yeah. Did you, like when you approached an attorney about it, like did you have to, I mean, was it hard finding somebody willing to go up against such a massive 
I mean, and this is David and Goliath, you know what I mean? Like this kind of story, like trying to go against such a big corporation of people. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's, I, that's ultimately what it, it is. is it I is. did speak to close to over 121 or 22 lawyers. Uh, I had people hang up the phone on me. I had people calling me. <laughs> Without I, a word, just click. Calling me an idiot. What am I doing going up against James Cameron? Uh I had people basically uh, insult me on the phone. Uh, People that said they're going to look at the material and never looked at it. People that took the material and never gave it back. Uh, But then finally, I managed to convince a specific law firm that looked at the DVD before anything else. And this is when they saw the DVD, they saw what's the material all about and realized that, okay, there is a copyright infringement case, and that's how I found that lawyer. Unfortunately, that lawyer decided not to present the DVD to the courts. Which and is ironic. Yeah, how, did that, how does that happen? I have no idea. They just... The piece of material that, that you The say, most crucial one. Yeah. The most... The, the, that the, got them on board. That got them on board decided... They decided to keep it off the record and away from the judge. And... Uh, and the jury. And the jury. Well, there was no jury. Oh, there's the judge no jury. Never mind. Scratch never that. No jury, judge. guys. <laughs> no. <laughs> the jury never got to see anything. The judge didn't get to see anything. So... Uh, that was very disappointing, and that's how I ended up losing my case against well, 20th so what, Century Fox. So what did they end up presenting then? Because They presented um, enough material you, to convince me yeah. that uh, it's out there, but not enough to convince the judge that there is copyright infringement. They presented similarities that they said it's... Um, Saint Affaire, which is a French word that is not translatable in, into French, but supposedly Saint-Affaire is something that is very common that you would see uh, in in different movies. But then if you pile up all these Saint-Affaire all together and come up with 372 quotes <laughs> or... Sub, I don't, I'm not familiar. I'm not familiar with the number anymore. But over 300 quotes quotes that came out of my book yeah. that matched the movie Avatar, then I don't know what Senafair means. Right. I mean, if every scene is a Senafair, then there is no copyright infringement. Well, and there never would be. Or never would you be. You know, I mean, nobody mm-hmm. could ever be accused of infringing on something if everything was a... a, a co- yeah, I mean, so I, it seems to me as if that's just a, a, a way of, of excusing a co- as, as coincidence or just inspiring me because there are artists who are inspired by the Beatles and there are artists who are inspired by all sorts of different other bands from back in the day, but it's different than them just blatantly ripping off a song. So there's... Yeah, I mean, I always think about that writing music. I can't imagine knowingly taking elements of someone else's song to create a new song, which is essentially what... There is a difference between inspiration and copyright infringement. Uh, I used to read when I was a kid. I decided not to read anymore when I came to the United States because I wanted to be uh, original. But I remember reading Waiting for Godot, for example, yeah. and decided to write Seeds of Illusion, another book, where 
it's all about waiting for something. Godot never shows up. In my story, spoilers. Shows up. <laughs> Godot never shows up, everybody. Never shows up. But the, <laughs> in my story, Godot shows up and saves the world and, uh, you know, allows people to escape from the wolves and the tyranny of a doctor and uh, the asylum where, you know, people were put in and, and all that stuff. You get inspired is one thing. You copyright infringe is something else. Yes. Mm-hmm. When you take someone's material and you copy it and and it's copying over and over and over again, every scene is something that came out of your book. Every nuance of of fairy tale uh, or fairy tale-ish is out of your book. Uh, the magic, it, all of it, the, the religion, uh, Everything that you can think of is right in that book. The only thing that wasn't in the book is a love story between two people. Which, you know what? Thank you for saying that because I was thinking this whole time how this is going to relate to what you said earlier. If, if, in, fo- if in Foxed, <laughs> if in fact 20th Century Fox was looking to create a story of uh, a human who falls in love with an alien and now what do we make the story around it? then very easily you you can start pulling from other elements to like create this very rich world around that very basic concept i can see that i can see that happening other than you know as opposed to somebody reading your book and saying i'm just going to make this exactly my way they just they had their skeleton that they wanted to tell and they picked and chose all the choice elements from your stories and populated their world with it which is which is the problem well, that's copyright infringement. Yes, right, exactly. I'm still exactly. bummed about the potential at the end where I thought maybe potentially Joshua and now Queen Gabriel. Gabrielle? Spoiler. Gabriella. Sorry, spoiler. Gabriella, my bad. Uh, I thought maybe they would they build do. a relationship they, over time and they, maybe that's, future that's books. That's the purpose. They do build a relationship after that. But would they fall in love? It's called Avatar well, 2, 3, That's my question at the end of the book. I was like, are it's they, an open do end. they have something? It's an open end. He decided to stay at the end. He, he did. did not go back home. I thought he was going to go back home to like to, to save humanity from no, the he wickedness. Decided, he decided to stay because... Look at him. He ended up with wings, you know. I mean, he's not part of that world. Yes, he feel, yet he feels compelled to be in it, you know. Uh, he's so far away from everything that happened in his life, and it's in the past, and he has to live in the future yeah. or in the present and look forward to a future with these people that appreciate him more mm-hmm. rather than just run after him and try beat him up. Right. Yeah. Why the hell would he want to come back why here? Why would he want to go back he was to a, planet? He Earth had wings. When he can <laughs> stay on planet Altair and fly like a beautiful creature and and have the wings of a queen, rather than just regular wings that are colorful and beautiful and strong and mighty. And eventually, in the sequel, he will fall in love with uh, Queen Gabriella. Yeah. One of my favorite scenes in the book was when they are sneaking through the forest. I guess all the big thick branches. Yes, and uh, they have to hide under the wings of the butterflies while they camouflaged everybody underneath oh, them. Yes, that's that's breathtaking. I loved that, it. Uh-huh. I want to see that. The magic, the magic that the butterflies have, and their way of just blending with nature and 
adapting and accepting and uh, being gracious and rising above everything. This is all about what humanity should be and how people should treat each other and how they should be able to uh, assimilate and accommodate. And this is what America is all about. I mean, again, I'm Lebanese. I came to this country seeking uh, not only refuge, but uh, prosperity and, and, and growth and, and success. And in spite of the fact that my material was stolen, I still believe that I succeeded in accomplishing what I wanted to accomplish. I am a writer and I am a good writer. I hope. Yeah. Well, definitely. It, and, and an award-winning writer. Thank yes. you. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, I mean, do you feel, um, is this the kind of story where you would write sequels to it? Like, do you think you'll ever well, write anything else? It's an open end. I mean, you know, the child Joshua is on planet Altair and the, the butterfly succeeded in crowning a new queen. So what's going to happen next? Mm -hmm. The bats are basically getting themselves uh, prepared all over again for a duel that would happen maybe 100 years from that point on or 50 years. And when a queen is supposed to take over, how would Joshua as an old person react? What did he do in that period of time? Uh, how did he ever fall in love with Gabriella? There is an entire story to be told. Within, before the next battle? Before the next battle. <laughs> wow. I mean, that's, I, I loved it. I thought it was amazing. I, I even feel, uh, I don't know, I just, despite what's going on, I just feel like this should be a, a movie that you have made, actually. Well, there is still a possibility that is, I'm still breathing. Yeah. And uh, maybe, who knows? Yeah. Do you have other published works? Where where might people be able to see any of your other works? Wow. Well, I mean, um, on I write fairy tales. I write children's stories. Uh, there is a couple of books on Amazon. Uh, you have my name, Elijah Shkeban, or if you look up Eugene the Hermit Crab or oh. Starfish Starwish, these are two projects that I wrote. One of them deals with the pollution of the ocean with plastic. And the second one deals with the pollution of the ocean with oil. And that's based on the Exxon Valdez accident that mm -hmm. took place uh, in the 90s, I believe, right. with, um, in Alaska. Yeah, yeah. So these are two projects that deal with pollution. And... Uh, the children's stories, they're, uh, they're, help me out in here. Um, um, picture book stories. Okay. And they're for children. And as I said, uh, I write children's stories and fairy tales. And uh, you can find that on the internet. Excellent. I feel like the underlying theme of a lot of your, like, just reading... Your st this story, this is the only thing. I want to read your children's books now because I do like that you're interested in, um, you have a, a big heart for kind of the injustices, I guess, that are going on uh, with things like big oil spills. We have another one, BP, that just happened. Exactly. Um, the pipelines that just happened up, what, Santa Barbara area? Yeah, yeah. Spilling yes. oil into the, again, it's like these human-created disasters. Yes. And... 
you're trying to tell stories to future generations as to, you know, how do we solve this issue within our own species? Well, I mean, if I, if I could, if my health would allow me, if my physique would allow me, I would go to the ocean and pick up trash every single day mm. and get it out of there. Unfortunately, I can't. You know, I'm basically uh, limited to what I can and cannot do. Uh, I need to give something back to this world. I mean, I've lived for 50-some years. I'm not saying how many. <laughs> uh, and I've taken, uh, I breathed a lot of air. I polluted uh, the water when I took showers and brushed my teeth and uh, you know, when I ate, I basically had to wash dishes and all that. That's all something that I've taken from this world yeah. and this planet. And I have to give something back. And giving something back uh, by teaching kids not to pollute, by teaching the world not to pollute, is one way of just letting, giving something back to this world. Yeah, I've taken so much. I mean... 58 years of breathing every four seconds. Right. How much oxygen <laughs> have I <laughs> taken? It's not right. Yeah, that's true. You got to give something back. What's, uh, what's your next step, I guess, with this saga that's going on? Like, obviously, it's not over. You can't just let that go. And Well, I mean, you know, I appealed my case and I lost the appeal, but based on new evidence that I discovered, based on uh, certain laws that were basically uh, were disrupted one way or another, whether it was by lawyers or any other factors, I am going to try my best to um, reopen the case against Avatar and uh, 20th Century Fox and Mr. James Cameron as much as I have a great respect for him as a person that can be so elaborate and can take someone's material and turn it into magic. There is no question about that. Yeah. The fact remains that this is my material and it was ripped off from me. And due to the fact that they're doing Avatar 2, 3, and 4 and everything that is coming with it, uh, I feel obligated to stand up for myself as a writer and to stand up for, my, for, every, for every writer that was infringed upon and uh, continue the war, find one way or another to reopen the case. Could I read one quote that really stuck out to me in this book? Sure. Uh, and this pertains to, I think, what you're going up against. Uh, a battle is never won by numbers. It is by planning and organizing that we will be victorious. Every second counts. Make your decisions with wisdom in mind. It is the only way against the horde of madness that is coming. I'm humbled. You just have amazing crazy. quotes in this. I mean, and the thing that I love about it is you, you touch on so many sides of our human nature, which I'm confused as to what human nature is because, like, think if you go into, uh, you, everyone's different. Everyone responds differently to, to situations. Well, yes, human nature is a duality of good and evil. And you could be creating the worst thing in the world and end up doing something wonderful. Or you could be doing something as great as you think it is and end up failing completely and destroying something. Mm -hmm. So it all depends on how you see it. It's all relative to what you think it is. Mm -hmm. 
I felt like you just stay with the positive always. You use Joshua as that example to no matter what's going on, he believes in what he, what he believes. He learned to believe. The only thing that he believed in is that his father was right. And from that point on, everything just fell in the right place for him. He doubted himself. He didn't like himself. He wasn't sure about himself. He was getting beat up, you know, on a regular basis. But the only thing that he believed in was the fact that his father loved him dearly and his father was right. Yeah, this book was, it's, there's a lot of wisdom in it. So I, I would give it two thumbs up. And Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I think it's worth reading for sure. It's on iTunes. We'll we'll post a link. We'll post a link on our Thank website you. as well to to and recommend that everybody pick up bats and butterflies. Yeah, and I feel like we'll we'll stay in contact as we move you move forward with all these crazy adventures, and we'll I, see what happens as it everything I unfolds. Hope so too. I hope so too. Uh, mind you, uh, when I went when I was in Lebanon, and I, I, w- I want to finish it with this, I did study philosophy, and I studied. Uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, uh, Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, uh, uh, Molière, Voltaire, Montesquieu, Diderot, all these people. And what attracted me the most was Le Petit Prince by Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. And uh, maybe that's what the whole story is based on, or the inspiration of my story is Le Petit Prince. The duality, the, the conflict that existed between those two writers, Jean-Paul Sartre, and Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, even though they did not live at the same time, in the same time frame, one of them believed in spirituality, the other one believed in existentialism. And with that in mind, they contradicted each other. And I did pay attention a lot to Jean-Paul Sartre and his work, uh, L'être et le néant, le bien et le mal, Le Diable et le Bon Dieu, the being and the nothingness, good and evil, and a God and the devil. And you see, with those two, in, with these titles, you see the conflict between good and evil, yes and no, God, the devil, existence, non-existence. This is where, slowly but surely, bats and butterflies came to be, and I decided maybe I should honor Antoine de Saint-Exupéry and Jean-Paul Sartre and put together a story about good and evil. And there you have it, bats and butterflies. It's definitely that. And unfortunately, uh, we're Joshua left us all here to just scrounge and scramble across this globe. Uh, <laughs> he's an Altair. He's, he's, he's flying around. Altair. He's got wings. His troubles are over. His troubles are over. Everybody or are a, they? Everybody mm. has a chance to go to Altair. Definitely. Yes, it is. Let's do it. It's worth it. Well, Elijah, thank you so much for being on our show. It was, we're we're thank honored. You for, thank you for having me. It was a joy talking to you Heck guys. yeah, we'll have you oh, back. We'll have you Absolutely. Back. Yes. yes, we'd love to continue to hear more about what, what it is that you're going through. And, and, and as it all progresses, you know, we'd love some updates. Absolutely. Okay. And if well, you write a here. sequel, please, I want to read it. So you, Joe, yeah, Joe would like it. a signed a signed e copy. Yeah. You got it, you know, <laughs> signed e copy. Yes, he just so over, personal. He hands over an iPad that has a Sharpie yeah, signature sure. on on the screen. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, ladies and gentlemen, for this week on High Dare, I'm Ian. I'm Elijah, and I'm Joe. And uh, read bats and butterflies. We, we gotta, gotta go. go. <laughs> bum, 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 bum.
on Twitter at Hi Dare Pod. And get your ass online because uh, Hi Dare.com misses you.